When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode on New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Professor David Atherton and his new book, Writing Violence, The Politics of Form in Early Modern Japanese Literature. It was recently published through Columbia University Press. Professor Asachin is an assistant professor at Harvard University specializing in Japanese literature, especially um, early modern Japanese literature. In this book, Professor Asachin examines a few uh, early modern Japanese popular fiction to understand how forms and formalization were used in depicting violence, as well as how these depictions fit into the early modern uh, social and political realities. Welcome, Professor Asajin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So before we talk about the book, could you perhaps tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, What do you teach and research about? Sure. Well, you gave me a very nice introduction already. Um, And as you said, I I, um, specialize primarily in literature of the Edo period, aka the Tokugawa period, aka the early modern period. In my teaching, I range uh, across different uh, aspects of Japanese literature well beyond the Edo period. Um, And I'm also interested uh, in thinking about how to reach even beyond literary studies directly to sort of larger interdisciplinary humanistic questions. So in addition to my teaching about Japanese literature and culture, I also teach a course called Creativity, um, which I think also is at the heart of my research interests. So even this book is sort of about, at some level, it's about early modern literary creativity. Um, And I've also done work on early modern authorship and conceptions of literary creativity. And I'm currently working on a new book thinking about 18th century conceptions of literary style. Sounds fascinating. I'll be uh, looking forward to the new book then. Well, so will I. Could be a long, a long time off (laughs) before it's done. Now, uh, when you first started learning about uh, Japan or literature, what aspect of early modern, I guess uh, we can say um, from the 17th to the 19th centuries, um, what aspects of that literature from that time period interested you? And why did you choose this specific topic of violence? Yeah, thank you for the great questions. Uh, And it's funny to think about, you know, what drew me to the early modern period, because that was what I came to last. So I, I came into Japanese studies, even 
I hadn't had much formal training in Japanese studies when I started the PhD program. Um, I had a background in Chinese studies and actually Southeast Asian studies. And so I was doing a lot of catch up and I originally thought that I would really be focused on um, earlier Japanese materials. Uh, and it wasn't until my third year of coursework that I finally took a seminar in Edo literature. And at that point, I had already come up with a whole dissertation project focused on the medieval period. And I'd been reading a lot of medieval materials um, in depth that were you know, fascinating to me, um, but something still wasn't quite clicking. And I remember in particular, I'd been reading a, a rather difficult medieval collection of, of short narratives called the Shintoshu, um, many of which are about like the origins of various gods. Um, and I remember just sort of struggling through one of these and some of them are really beautiful and evocative, but at the end of one, I just sort of had this genealogy of different gods and I felt like I'd been laboring away for hours and I wasn't sure what the takeaway was, you know? Um, and then I turned to my reading for the Edo seminar and read a work of short fiction by Yahara Saikaku, 17th century writer, that is from a collection of his that is kind of modeled on medieval short fiction collections like Setsuashu. And it seemed very conscious of the fact that it was modeled on them. Um, and it was playing with all of the conventions of them and taking them in wild and crazy new directions. Uh, and, it, and it was a lot of work to read as well. And at the end of it, I was like, that was a lot of work, but wow, it was entertaining and complex and gives me so much to think about. Um, and I think that was the real starting point. Um, part of what has really interested me about the, the early modern period is that it's in dialogue with everything that comes before. Much of the literature that I work on is also commercial literature. So it's written, <laughs> it's written to sell, right? So it's supposed to be entertaining. Um, and it's written by people from all walks of life. So that was another thing that really has always appealed to me about Edo literature is when I was you know, reading earlier things, I was sort of starting to feel the claustrophobia of the aristocratic world. And suddenly I was reading things written by people from all sorts of different walks of life in all sorts of different styles. And that was a big part of the appeal. Um, and I think that the second part of your question, you know, what led me to this project? As, as you noted, it's a project about violence. But as you also noted in your introduction, in many ways, it's a book about form. Um, and as I was working on it and trying to articulate, what is the question that I'm trying to answer here? Um, sometimes I feel like my questions are ultimately really basic ones, but there's something appealing to me about returning to kind of fundamental questions and saying, wait, have we taken the time to answer these? Even on a personal level, have I taken the time to answer this? And my question <laughs> I found myself asking was how to read early modern Japanese fiction? Very basic question. Um, but it goes back even to that first encounter with Saikaku of saying, wow, that was a really entertaining story. And it's very complex. And it even seems to be commenting wittily on tradition and on its own world. But I have no idea even how to interpret it or make sense of it. Um, that, that kind of question is really at the heart of, of this book. Um, and I'm sort of answering that question of how to read through the lens of violence, because I feel like violence, uh, A, it was a very fraught category in the early modern period, you know, a period that in which it was celebrated as a, as a period of peace, 
but was ruled over by warriors who didn't have wars to fight for the most part anymore. Um, but it also connects to the nature of form. And we, I mean, we can talk about that later. Um, but in terms of trying to figure out how to make sense of early modern works, the question of how to make sense of their depictions of violence seemed like a really fruitful inroad uh, to answering that question. It's and I should also clarify, yeah. oh, sorry, I was just gonna clarify one more thing. For a long time, I thought I'm writing a book about violence and it took a while before I realized, oh, it's really a book about form through the lens of violence. Yeah, that's 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 absolutely amazing. And I, I totally agree. I mean, as an early modernist myself, I totally agree that early modern literature has so much creativity, as you say, uh, in the ways that they depict all kinds of um, emotion. Now, since uh, form is this very important, this um, main thread of your book, um, I want to unpack your book by talking about uh, talking more about this concept. So how do you interpret form in your book and um, why is it important to our understanding of early modern commercial fiction uh, in Japan? Yeah, thank you. So um, form is one of these slippery words, right? <laughs> it's, it's easy to sort of use it and then you have to ask, wait, how am I using it and what exactly does it mean? So to answer your question, I think it's helpful for me even to talk about first the kind of problems that I was encountering as I was reading works of commercial fiction. And that was, you know, I would read a work and I would feel like, wow, that's very complicated. And I feel like it has things to say about the world beyond its pages. But it also at the same time seems to be holding the world at a kind of remove. Um, if you think of, say, the, the modern realist European novel or something, you would say, oh, that, that's a mode that's trying to get us closer and closer to the experience of lived reality or something like that. And this felt very different. Oh, the characters are all kind of stock characters. Um, the plots are often sort of you know, convoluted, but reworking plots that already exist. There's a lot of convention that's being played with in really elaborate ways. They're very intertextual. They're often really rigorously in dialogue with texts that have come before. Um, how does any of that have to do with the real world in a sense? And so a big part of the argument of the book is to say, we can get at the heart of this question by thinking in terms of form. And I define form really broadly. So, you know, people sometimes differentiate form from content, like, okay, you have a sonnet, that's the form, and then you fill it up with content. Um, so it becomes almost more like genre. My approach to form is, is much broader than that. So I essentially say form is any of these ingredients where when you encounter it, you say, oh, that's a recognizable thing, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, oh, this kind of character, I've encountered this kind of character before. This plot structure, I've encountered this plot structure before. This intertextual reference, I've seen it. It's like these modular ingredients. Um, that get remixed and mashed up and recombined in new ways. And that is central really to the early modern approach to literary creativity. There's even contemporary vocabulary for, con vocabulary for this, the idea of the shukol, um, the innovation. So the, you know, our modern conception in many ways of literary creativity is to say, oh, you know, a talented genius 
feels inspired and creates something that's completely new and novel. I don't think that's even really true in any circumstance, but in the Edo period, that, that was not prized in the same way. What was celebrated was saying, you know, a really talented writer takes a bunch of these sort of modular ingredients that already exist elsewhere and recombines them in a fresh way. And that fresh twist that the person gives to it is, they call that the shukol, right? Um, so, so that's like part one <laughs> of thinking about form. The next thing for thinking about form is, wait, so is that actually holding the real world at a remove or is that in an early modern context actually getting us closer to the real world? Um, so the, the second sort of big part of my approach to form is to say, actually, early modern culture invested really deeply in formalization, conventional conventionalization, is that a real word? Um, um, you know, there was a certain, even in uh, forms of dress and modes of behavior, there's a certain way to look and act like a samurai, for example. Um, there, as you know, Mary Elizabeth Berry has written about this quite eloquently, um, the taxonomic consciousness that pervades early modern thought of saying, okay, we can break everything down into pieces and we can see where all those pieces fit. And we can see how they combine into larger holes. Um, there seems to be a kind of homology between that, I'm arguing, um, between how people are living their lives and perceiving themselves and perceiving their worlds in, in terms of sort of norms and deviations from norms, formalized norms and deviations from those, and how they're putting together literary works. So the, the third aspect, <laughs> this is where I'll sort of wrap up talking about my theory of form. Um, you know, I was really concerned with the, that question of, do these works have meaningful things to say about their world? And the way I word that is to say, do they have a politics? And politics sometimes can feel like a very black and white thing. Um, in early modern studies, it tends to fall kind of into two camps. One is to say, oh, a work is, political if it's subversive and subversive specifically to governmental authority. The shogunate is oppressive. The writers are protesting that oppressiveness in some way, that's political. Um, another approach uh, that is very strong in the field um, is to say, oh, early modern texts are not political at all. They're, they contribute fully to a shared consensus about what the world is and how it's put together. And, um, they're primarily affirmative of that, of those dominant values, or they provide some kind of escapism from aspects of daily life. And I've even had this experience. I was many years, a number of years ago, I was presenting on um, part of what became chapter five of the book and talking about what I saw as the politics of this text. And uh, it was a Japanese scholar actually who came up to me afterwards and said, excuse me, can you clarify what you mean by politics? Because my understanding is that early modern Japanese literary works are not political. And that was a kind of wake up moment for me to say, oh, I really have to think about even what I mean by political. Um, and so my answer to that, or the answer that I found very helpful to me um, is from uh, the French thinker Jacques Rancière, who said, and I'm roughly quoting him, the role of the literary critic is to ask, what is the world that this work proposes um, in the sense of saying, when you read a text, it's saying, here's a model of how the world might be ordered, how it might be put together, 
what it includes, what's kept out, um, what comes to the foreground, what's pushed to the background. And the job of the, the you know, literary scholar is to look at it and say, oh, this is, the, this is how it's conceiving of the world. So going back to this idea of modular forms, forms that repeat, and often we could say, yeah, they repeat in a formulaic way, they repeat in the same way or subtle variations on the same way, but sometimes as they repeat across different texts, they permutate, <laughs> uh, they change, um, or the ways that they're combined with each other create new meanings that sort of resonate between them. Um, and in those shifts between the literary forms, if we're thinking of a formalized society beyond the page as well, they're opening up and foreclosing different possibilities for perceiving the world and saying, oh, when we put the pieces together in this way, this is what that world looks like. And they can present really different models of what that world might be. And that's what I call politics. What kind of world are they, are these formal combinations proposing? And that sometimes it's a world that is very much, you know, in acquiescence with and affirmative of dominant values and authority. Sometimes it's more what we would call subversive. Often it has nothing to do with governmental authority at all, but has to do with the politics of everyday life, um, the gender politics of and sexual politics of the household, for example, um, or even the imagination of what constitutes this thing that might or might not be called Japan. Um, so that's a long answer, but that's like the, the theoretical heart of the book. Um, so <laughs> Thank I hope you. that made some degree of sense. Yeah. Oh, it totally did. It is such a clear way of um, summarizing how you're using the, the, the concept form in this book. And I might just also add um, chapter five, the one on politics. It was my favorite chapter when I read this because I, in my own work, I'm very much into this, um, the, the, the intersection of politics and literary works kind of um, theme. So yeah, I really liked that one. Now, now that we've clarified uh, what form means in this book, can you also tell us how you position this theme of violence within the literature and politics um, of early modern Japan? Absolutely. So yes, the other big ingredient of this book is, or thematic ingredient, is violence. Um, and as I said earlier, I originally thought, oh, violence, that's a really fraught, interesting topic in the early modern context, I'll write a book about violence. And then I got really lost in that. I was like, what am I, what am I really talking about? And I realized I was really talking about form through violence because violence has a really complex relationship to form, particularly in the early modern period. I think actually at all times. Um, and one thing I wrestled with early on was, you know, what do I even mean by violence? And it took a while to realize wait, violence isn't a thing. In fact, I quote a scholar named Peter Haidu who says, violence must not be hypostasized. It's a relational concept. It's not a thing. It's the product of constant negotiation between all sorts of different viewpoints and values, and it's constantly being, being worked out. What counts as violent or not? What, um, and this is something that is another aspect of violence, what counts as licit violence or illicit violence? When is violence justified? When is it not justified? But also, are there forms of violence that are okay or even culturally approved, right? Or are seen as constructive? And are there other ones that are seen as destructive? Um, in, the, in the early modern period, as I said earlier, this is really fraught because again, the entire society emerges out of a couple centuries of warfare it's ruled over by warriors. 
it has sort of military preparedness worked into its its very DNA of the the social structure, the entire like makeup of the of the polity, even right down to the if you think of the Tokaido Highway, like it's even designed to make sure that armies can't easily march along it. <laughs> so, somewhere at a deep level, violent the threat of violence is is right there, even in the shape of a road. Um, and for warriors who are saying, well, our right to rule comes from the fact that we're maintaining the peace, then what becomes of aspects of warrior culture, for example, that are violent? Well, one solution to that problem is to, to make them, in a sense, positive things that are rigorously formalized, that you say, oh, these have a really distinct shape that can attenuate their destructive potential, and they can actually serve I mean, this is the, the sort of theory, right? The ideology of it, they can serve the preservation of order. So an example of that would be blood revenge. Uh, there's a long history that goes back to the medieval period of samurai in particular, um, taking revenge for the murder of usually a senior family member. Um, and that's a bloody, dangerous, atavistic practice. And in the Edo period, they formalize it. They were, they, they were not for various reasons. We don't have to go into that now, but they essentially say, we won't get rid of this practice. We'll keep it, but we'll bureaucratize it. You have to, I mean, it doesn't always go this way, but ideally you have to apply for permission and get a permit to go out and carry out blood revenge, right? There's a proper way to do it. Again, it has a correct form. There's good revenge and there's bad revenge. You do revenge in a way that has the wrong form, then it's suspect. Um, and even when you know real revenges were carried out, inspectors would come and check the facts. Was it a proper revenge? Was it not? How was it carried out? Right. Um, so that were ritual ritual suicide by disembowelment, seppuku. This is another example of a violent practice that becomes kind of idealized to a certain degree, um, but also through rigorous formalization. Right. It's a battlefield practice that takes on this almost ritualized, formalized role in a peaceful society. Then there's other forms of violence that you would say um, the early modern order is very fearful of, uh, ones that are not formalized, ones that are disruptive. Um, and so thinking about, well, you know, what is the nature of those? Um, how does literature depict these different forms of violence? How does it play with their forms themselves? Uh, what is being invested in that formalization of various violent forms or the fear of their lack of form in some ways. Particularly what happens when you have a violent form that or a, an act of violence that looks like a lot of things that have been formalized in a way that makes them okay, but it doesn't quite fit. It's formally weird. So that's the subject of chapter four, actually, in which this brother beheads his sister at the home of a neighbor. Um, and it in some ways looks like a an honor killing, but it doesn't, and there's, there's sort of legal guidelines for what that is, what it should look like, and it doesn't quite fit that. So even the, the figures who are investigating this case, they sort of rewrite what happened to make it fit the form of a, of a patriarchal honor killing. And then what I look at is a writer, Ueda Akinari, who comes along and writes multiple versions of this story. Like, no, 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 this doesn't fit. What does it fit? How do we make this thing fit? Does it fit at all? 
at this almost formal level, like approaching the violent act from the form first and then trying to figure out, well, how do we tell the difference between truth and fiction, right and wrong, when this violent act doesn't quite fit where it belongs? Um, so that's, <laughs> that's part of the work I'm doing with violence. Um, or, or I would say like in chapter two, for example, I, I write about blood revenge and the writer Ihara Saikaku is not known for his revenge stories, but he wrote a lot of them. And there I say, well, he's, he's actually, you know, blood revenge wasn't only a, a social practice. It was also a kind of literary, not just a trope, but, um, set of conventions, a narrative structure. and Revenge seems to have existed in the popular imagination somewhere between the two of these um, as a kind of narrative form with a, a very set beginning, middle, and end um, that was supposed to represent um, illicit uh, moral violence that would constrain illicit immoral violence. And I look at Yahara Saikaku playing with that form in a sense, what I call the revenge form, by sort of deforming it narratively in his stories, making these weird revenge stories that start to point to the idea that you can't constrain violence through violence. <laughs> if, if you try to make violence moral and safe in some ways, you're actually masking all sorts of other collateral violences or other value systems that work against um, that promise of safety. So there's a couple examples, but each chapter in some way comes at violence in it, in it from a different angle and tries to think about that question of what are the, as I said earlier, the political implications of looking at violence for, at a formal level. That's very, um, I, I know it, we were talking about supposedly a kind of heavy um, topic, but I do find it very intriguing. And out of completely, uh, out of complete uh, curiosity, I wonder where you would position um, the category of lover's suicide, because um, I suppose it could also be seen as a form of violence, but uh, was it also formalized like blood revenge was? No, absolutely. That's a wonderful example, a fantastic example. And I don't specifically write about love suicide uh, in the book. I'm, I'm interested particularly in like um, sort of veering just to the side of things that are more familiar. So Shikamatsu Monzaimon is very famous for his love suicide plays. I write about his one of his adultery plays. So it's sort of adjacent to love suicide. Um, the love suicide is a, a wonderful example because um, it's illicit at a certain level. It's certainly, I mean, I would say violent. It's people killing themselves in usually uh, painful ways that are also um, subversive ways in the sense that uh, they're not supposed to kill themselves this way from a, ultimately, I mean, it's banned. It's, you know, um, criminalized. Um, and at the same time, it has a distinct form and can be, you know, as a practice, it can be copied easily. And we see that blurriness of the boundary between fiction and reality, where it seems to be the case that people are watching love suicide plays and then being inspired to carry out love suicides, even as the love suicide plays themselves are inspired by real love suicides. And it's another case where you could say, okay, there's a kind of implicit form or structure to this that seems to hover in the popular imagination between fiction and reality. 
Um, and then a writer can innovate within that structure to create all sorts of different meanings. Um, and that's, you know, I, as I said, I don't write about love suicide in the book, uh, but that would be a really rich avenue to, to sort of build on the approach I'm trying to lay out here. I, I, I think of the book, as I was writing it, I was thinking of it as I'm trying to present a kind of methodology that other people could then pick up and use in their own interesting ways on all sorts of different texts. And that would be very rich <laughs> terrain <laughs> for doing so. Awesome. Uh, now, the authors and the works discussed in your book, they range from the 17th and 19th century, as we talked about in the beginning. So uh, how did you choose these authors and works? And uh, I mean, other than uh, obviously violence and forms, um, what else do they share in common? Or I guess um, to tie into the, the, the bigger point of your book, um, how do they reflect the social changes from these three centuries as how people perceived and depicted um, violence? Yeah, thank you. So once again, there's a few ways to answer that question. So I wanted the structure of the book to do several different things. One was, and you asked, you know, what, what do they share in common? Um, anyone reads the book who will discover, wow, each chapter can almost stand alone. They're very, very different. Each chapter focuses on a different moment, a different violent trope or form of violence, uh, a different author or cluster of authors. And as you said, they span 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, so in many ways, you know, you look at the chapters and you go at the level of the specifics, they don't necessarily have a lot in common. But what I wanted to show by putting them all together and really by trying to cover all three centuries of the, the Edo period was to say, look, there is a kind of fundamental mode that underlies early modern narrative more broadly. And that's the one I've you know, been talking about, about um, you know, recombination of pre-existing formal modules in a sense to create new forms of perception. So that's the thing. I think all of the chapters show that that dynamic is is um, animated in in each of the texts that I write about. Um, uh, at the same time, I I wanted to kind of push back at, against the idea that I didn't want to just tell my own narrative historical story. I didn't want to say, in a sense, um, what's the best way to put this. I wanted to show that there's a kind of fundamental mode that's operative, but I didn't want to say, oh, there's one overarching master story I can tell and all of these fit into it and they fit into it at the narrative structure of beginning, middle and end, right? Um, instead, I wanted to say, look, the devil is in the details when we are reading for form. And that's one of the motivating factors of the book as a whole was, to, and, and even to your question of, why did I choose these writers and these works in particular? They're all major writers, but I'm writing about works that have not received as much attention in English or Japanese, really, um, as some of their more famous works. And why these ones? In part, because when I read them, they got under my skin and confused me. And I said, oh, these don't quite fit my pre-existing models. I don't know quite how to read them. Um, and so it was very much from the bottom up. They all have to do with violence. And that was part of what hooked me um, but in each chapter, I was trying to work out, you know, oh, I have my 
my preconceived notions that I tell about the Edo period, and suddenly, oh, here's a text that's yanking me in some different direction, um, off the main road and into some byway, or maybe that byway is actually a, you know, a major road that we've kind of missed. So I wanted to, that's the, the other piece, is I wanted to come to terms on a case-by-case level with these, these texts that sort of tripped me up almost at the formal level, where I would say, I don't quite get how this is working. This text is smarter than I am. How can I help it speak in a way that I and others can understand? Um, so in that sense, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, I'm crafting this story where they're all sort of reflective of a larger historical narrative. In some ways, I'm saying here's a, a group of individuals <laughs> that are, um, when we group them together, they can help us see an underlying dynamic. But they're each going to do very, very different things. Now, at the same time, at the risk of sort of contradicting everything that I just said, <laughs> the very first main chapter and the very last main chapter, I did want to include a sense of transition from the medieval episteme into an early modern one, and then from an early modern one out into a modern one. So the very first chapter is explicitly looking at a case of a writer who's writing about disaster and he's taking a bunch of medieval tropes. This is Asaid Yoi in the 17th century, and he's remixing them in a way so that disaster means something that it's never meant before. And so I'm looking that, at that as a kind of bridge between the medieval period and the early modern period. And then the very last chapter, I'm looking at Santo Kyoden uh, writing a, a book, a narrative, a Yomihon, in which he's, um, as I argue, there's almost like a questions that we could call proto-national in there of what he's not talking about Japan as a nation state, but there's a sort of incipient sense of the question of how Japan fits in among a world of distinct states <laughs> or nations and what holds it together and what kind of body it has and what kinds of bodies it comprises um, or comprise it. Um, and so that was then gesturing outwards more towards uh, the concern with with um, nationhood that would follow the Edo period. Okay, I was going to ask um, about the different um, ways of violence, but we already covered that. So I guess uh, if it's okay, can I ask you to use an example to show how um, these different um, forms of violence were used by the authors, by these, uh, again, commercial authors, to uh, convey um, their messages by portraying violence in the forms that they were portrayed in um, from the chapters. Yeah, um, sure. So, and I, yeah, I, I was maybe nitpicky. I hesitate to say, oh, the, the authors had messages and they were conveying them. I guess I would say that the texts themselves are proposing models of the world. And who knows if the authors themselves we're conscious of that or not, right? Um, so that's one of those tricky things to to, to try to disentangle. But I I try to approach approach it at the level of the text, you know, in dialogue with what we know about the authors. But sometimes I feel like texts are doing things that maybe their authors are not even entirely conscious of. Um, that's it. So an example, um, one that I alluded to a moment ago, um, is the case of disaster. So in the very first chapter, Asai Yoi, for example, uh, depicts the great Meiriki fire, which 
uh, in the middle of the 17th century really devastated the shogun's capital of Edo. Now, throughout the medieval period, disaster is very connected to violence, um, either to uh, either as an omen of violence to come or even disaster as a kind of tool of otherworldly rancorous agents who are wreaking their wrath upon the human world. Uh, so if you think of, you know, angry spirits of the politically dispossessed or exiled or killed or whatever, that they come back in the form of disaster, um, that's their violence on the political order. Or these are omens that are saying, you know, governance is corrupt, more violence is on the way. And so in a, you know, in the early decades of this new warrior ruled age of peace for the shogun's capital to have a horrific fire that kills possibly as many as 100,000 people and burns somewhere between a, you know, a quarter and a third of the city to ashes. Um, there's a long medieval tradition that says, oh, you know, their old political enemies have returned <laughs> and bad things are at hand, right? This is, this is violent. Um, and what I do in that chapter is I look at how Ryoi works with a bunch of the conventions of medieval literature and rearranges them in such a way that the voices that would say, oh, this is a portentous omen, are sort of relativized and almost ridiculed and sort of exiled from the story. Um, and instead, a whole new set of values that have to do with um, information, uh, rationality, numbers, measurement, in a sense, come into play. Um, and even represent, like even in the burning of the shogun's capital, he turns that into a representation of the capital itself. And you start to see the capital, the capital, the shogun's capital, Edo, as this place where a huge number of powerful political figures, all these daimyo have been gathered at the feet of the shogun, essentially. So it becomes this metropolis of power and really of shogunal authority. Um, and then as he depicts the recovery efforts, um, and in various vignettes as well, he's constantly pointing to the idea that in an age of peace, how do you know that the political order is actually coherent, um, secure, strong, well-ordered? Well, it takes a disaster to show that. So he's actually using disaster to reveal, oh, no, 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 this isn't a sign of bad things to come. This is the seal of an age of peace. This is a sign of good governance. This is what makes good governance legible. Um, so that's one example of uh, violence being sort of transformed. Um, another example, uh, very, very different direction, <laughs> uh, would be a adultery. So I, chapter three is about a case of two adulterous lovers who are crucified for the crime of adultery. Uh, this is a real case. Um, and then I look at the different ways in which that story was retold. I look at the crucifixion itself as a kind of text that is conveying a message ultimately about adultery and punishment. Um, but then I look at um, popular kind of street performances, a genre called utazaimon that retells their story. I look at a, a short story depicting their, um, their story by Ihara Saikaku, and I look at a play by Chikamatsu Monzaimon, and I show how circulating among all of these different versions are the same formal ingredients, but each version remixes them in such a way that the import of adultery 
and the status of these adulterers gets transformed and they take on radically different meanings in each version. Um, so that's a quick answer, or not, not quick answer, but <laughs> a couple examples uh, of the different ways that um, I work with the idea of violence in the book. As I was reading the book, um, I couldn't help but wonder, so these were, um, these were commercial fiction and the authors were writing it for sale, as you mentioned in the beginning. Now, if we is is there a possibility that we can also consider um, the, this uh, the forms of violence written in these these books from the perspective of the readers? Um, what when they're paying to either buy or rent these books? What were they paying for, and why would they pay for these kind of books with? various forms of violence in them and how does that I guess um yeah how does the their reception of these forms of violence um fit into the social context of the times the the three centuries that the chapters covered what yeah what about the readers yeah um that's a great question and man um I think it's Roger Chartier who says reading is vagabond. <laughs> it's very hard to trace um, the experience of of readers, particularly in the in the in the Edo period. Um, if someone didn't write down their reaction to a book, you know, you can look at sales, you can look at which books were more popular than others, but it's it's hard to know how any individual reader made sense of a book or what they were what they were doing with it. At the same time, you know, the way you worded the question is very interesting because. Said, so why would people want to read, you know, books about violence? Um, for some of the things that, you know, for example, for Yahara Saikoku's revenge fiction, um, I think I think those are very sophisticated works that are doing a lot of different things, but they haven't received as much scholarly attention, um, even in Japanese, as some of his other of his more famous works that are not violent, um, and I think. They sometimes get sort of written off as, oh, that's just everyone wants to read about violence. Violence is lurid, violence is appealing. I mean, you look at so many Hollywood blockbusters, <laughs> they're riddled with violence, right? People go to consume violence in all sorts of ways. Um, but I think there's a risk of then sort of writing it off as, oh, and that's all it is. It's just a base human instinct, you know, the instinct that makes people want to look at car crashes or something. Um, and that's a good way for writers to. You know, get eyeballs on their on the pages of their books and and get readers. Um, and in some cases, that's probably true. Uh, you know, I'm I've focused in the book on works that I think are complex and doing more work than just trying to sell copies. But I've read plenty of books that are from the Edo period, and I should make this clear that are pretty derivative. They're just remixing the forms that in ways that have sold well in the past and they're not particularly interesting and they can be really lurid and violent. Um, and sometimes I read them and I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot more going on here. But with these ones that I focus on in the book in particular, I feel like you know, they're written by really talented writers who have the ability to write something that can appeal to a reader who just wants an interesting story. And at the same time, if you wanna read them as doing more than just providing an interesting story, there's a lot more going on. And 
you know, a figure like Santo Kyoden, for example, who is the, the subject of the last main chapter of the book, um, you know, I think he was very savvy at this. He'd gotten his start as a writer of Kibyoshi, these, um, you know, short pamphlet-like entertaining works that were very witty. And he was always very good at writing them in such a way that you could not know very much um, about the sort of inner humor, the, the, the inside humor and the witty and sophisticated humor of those books. And yet you can still pick it up and find it entertaining. And yet, if you're also someone who's a little more, you know, an urban sophisticated reader, um, you can appreciate it at another level. And if you're one of his buddies and there's all sorts of inside jokes <laughs> worked in about them, like you can get it at yet another level. Um, so I think even, you know, the book that is the subject of the last chapter, that's a nice example. You can read it as a lurid revenge story, but you can also really read it as a complex meditation on the question of what is Japan as a, as a body? Um, is it a coherent body? Is it a cohesive body? Is it a cannibalistic body is the question that Kilden himself ultimately asks. And um, that's present in that book too. Sounds, but how did readers read yes. it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. Uh, but I, I think you put it in such a way that uh, made, yeah, made these commercial fictions sound really appealing, even even in today's context. So, um, yeah, that, that was yeah, that was great. And now through your readings of violence in early modern Japanese fiction and through through, through the different forms of violence. How do you think, um, now this is my uh, big so what question time, how do you think understanding these different forms of violence in these um, books from 200 years ago can help us understand the early modern Japanese society um, or Japanese literature in a way that's, um, as you said, um, different from these, these uh, modes or these tropes that we may be so used to. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, as I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, if there's one overall intervention that the book tries to make, um, it's in setting forth a kind of mode or a methodology of reading for early modern form and connecting that to the question of politics in the broad sense of politics that I defined that I like to think other people could then pick up and engage with, with other texts. So even as you were saying, well, how about love suicides? I would love to see somebody <laughs> kind of draw on my approach to form and violence and then give us a really interesting reading of love suicide plays. Um, so I like to think that I've provided a set of conceptual tools that others can use probably in more interesting and sophisticated ways than I have. Um, and then I, you know, I try to, provide these specific examples through the lens of violence, but I don't think the overall mode is even limited to thinking about violence itself. Um, the other thing I would say in answer to your question, form is uncanny. <laughs> it's very, it's, the more you pay attention to it, the more interesting it becomes in the sense that, because you asked it sort of in this, um, at the very important level of, well, how can this help us understand these works of literature and their moment and their, their culture better, right? Um, but attention to form can also help us understand reception and things beyond the moment of inception of the books as well. 
because form has this real capacity to slip free of its original context, even to go kind of dormant for a while and get activated, reactivated at different moments and get read in very, very different ways. So the epilogue of the book um, addresses this. I look at uh, an, an image, actually, a, a woodblock print um, by Tsukyuka Yoshitoshi. Uh, and I look at what the formal dynamics of that print, how, how and, and the series that it's part of, how that would have been read in the year 1868 when, this, when the um, series was originally published. And then I look at how different figures over time, um, Edogawa Rampo, for example, and, and Mishima Yukio, have turned to the same print series and teased out of them and out of their formal dynamics even, meanings that would have been illegible probably to an early modern viewer. Um, and at the same time, the significance of those forms for the early modern viewer has become kind of illegible <laughs> to these later interpreters of them. So paying attention to those formal dynamics and learning how they work, I think can also give us um, sort of tools for thinking about the nature of reception and just for thinking about how um, the modular sort of formal ingredients of Edo literature live on and get reformulated in, in completely new ways once the cultural and political context of their moment of creation falls away and they're still living on into uh, a very new, you know, very new moments and, and different uh, cultural and political and social configurations. Thank you. That's very well put. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk with me about your new book today. And uh, for our listeners who are interested in reading more, please make sure to check out this new book, Writing Violence, The Politics of Form in Early Modern Japanese Literature by Professor uh, David Atherton. This book is currently available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook. This is Jingyi on New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.